Hello, all. Hi, it's good to be with you. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I feel like I know many of you, but for those of you I don't, I'm really glad to be with you here this morning. You know, the stories and personality portraits in 1 Samuel have been really meaningful and convicting to me. I have connected really deeply with a lot of these stories. I hope that's been true for you as well. This chapter in particular puts a spotlight on David, who finds himself in one tough spot after another, and I know we've all had stretches of life where we feel like we just can't catch a break. I think he probably feels like that today as well. I know that we haven't lived through the exact same situations that he has been tangled up in. His are different. Um, Yours and mine may be different But the ways that David goes right to the Lord over and over really do give us a model for how we can handle our own hard things. I also love that we see God's perfect faithfulness and how he directs David's path, protects David's heart all along the way in this story. And because David's God is our God too, we get to trust that David's God will be just as faithful and powerful to direct our paths and protect our steps as what we see on these pages. So if you'd like to follow along with me, as we begin, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23, and I'm going to start reading in just verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and robbing the threshing floors. So Keilah was a town in Israel, but it was close to the Philistine border, and that made it uh, vulnerable to invasion. It was probably only about 10 miles-ish, maybe, from the Philistine border. We actually have a map on the um, screen here. You can see Keilah kind of almost right there in the center of the map. It would have been in the um, in Judah, but uh, you can't see borders there, but it wouldn't been, have been that far from the Philistine border. So what was happening is that the Philistines were bringing their um, cattle, their livestock across their border to the threshing floor at Keilah. This would have been outside of their city walls and allowing their livestock to eat up the grain that was being threshed before the um, townspeople could gather it up and go take it to make, um, make their bread. You know, Throughout 1 Samuel, it seems like every time the Israelites turn around, the Philistines are at it again with um, the Israelites. This was no exception. This was a very violent invasion of their town. People were going hungry because that grain would have been a primary food source for them to be able to make their bread. And now that we know that that's kind of the situation, let's pick back up in verse two. Therefore, Because he had found out this information about what was happening at Keilah, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. 
Okay, so first off, it's interesting that when this town is under attack, it's David that the people go to for help and not Saul, whose literal job description is to protect his people. David is already being seen as this very capable leader. He's already being seen as a defender of Israel. In many ways, he's, it's already a foreshadowing of this coming kingship. And we're going to actually see that several other times throughout this chapter as well, and we'll talk about it a little bit. So when David is told of Keilah's invasion, he asks God whether he should go there and help. Now, you might uh, remember back in chapter 13 when Samuel called David a man after God's own heart. That was when he first anointed him as a future king. And I think this is one of those ways that it looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart because David is handed a real problem here. His help is immediately needed. There is a... um, Keila is in need right now of some kind of help, and it would have been very easy for him to spring into some kind of action without really stopping to think. And out of all the things that David could have done in that moment, the one thing he actually does is he stops and he prays, Lord, should I go? I have been so convicted that this needs to be my default action, the default action for all of us under tricky circumstances, hard decisions, difficult conversations, uh, all the ways um, that life can be tough, all the way up to actual life and death matters before we do anything, before we even begin to think or plan anything. If we will take it to the Lord and listen hard and submit our will to his, and then go forth under his guidance and direction, man, it will go so much better for us. So David asked the Lord if he should go to Keilah, and God says, yes, go. And I think David sort of liked a good fight. Uh, He was glad probably to gather his men, have another go at those wicked Philistines. He knows that these guys have no respect for the living God. His men are not of the same mind. They were much afraid as we've seen before in our study. You know, all the way through 1 Samuel, we've watched the Israelite men have great fear over their enemies. And by the time I was really studying this deeply, I just started to get really annoyed at hearing how um, cowardly they seem to be over and over. And I'm thinking, what in the world is wrong with y'all? At least fake it and act like you're brave. And I'm not even sure that they were capable of faking it, probably because... These men, unlike David, looked at every um, battle strictly through what they could see with their eyes. This is not unlike what we often do. And what they saw is that they were outnumbered, outmanned, um, outgunned, and their human logic said, this is a dumb idea. It's going to get us all killed. There's no reason for us to go and try to help if we can't save them and we're gonna get killed in the process. But David always, always seemed to see beyond human limitations and remembered and trusted the unlimited power of God to act on behalf of his people. He remembered that they served the God who had parted the Red Sea, who had caused the walls of Jericho to fall, a hundred other things like it. This is the same David who fought Goliath and won He was always full of courage, but it was always because he knew what the Lord could do um, and what the Lord could do through him. David knew and lived according to these truths on your verse sheet. Let's look at the first two verses on your verse sheet. 
The first one is in Exodus 15. And this is someone who is speaking to God, who says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This is what, the Lord, uh, what David remembered that the Lord could and would and had done and would do in the future. And then look at this Isaiah 41 verse. This is the Lord speaking to men. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is what those fearful soldiers needed to hear there. Because his men didn't want to fight at Keilah for a second time, David goes back to the Lord and asks what he should do. Um, Again, he says, here's my problem. I'm taking it to you, Lord. God directs David to fight and he promises David that he will see to his victory. Perhaps he used words with David that were similar to what we just read in Isaiah. And in response to the Lord's direction, David convinces his men to go and fight the Philistines at Keilah. I would have loved to hear whatever that speech was, whatever that rally was that David gave to his men and the words he used to encourage them. But as he promised, God gave David and his men a decisive victory. Not only did they put a stop to the um, Philistines stealing that grain, but they also got to plunder all that Philistine livestock, probably left Keilah in a better place than when they started because livestock was a very valuable asset. So they were able to um, keep the grain from then on that they were growing. They got to keep that extra livestock. Um, the Philistines had to go back home um, empty-handed. God's power, generosity, loving care for his people is on full display, both for Keilah, for the Philistines, for the soldiers, and of course, for David too. You know, there's a lot of hard things happening, even in this situation, even in the midst of victory. Um, for the people of Keilah, before David and his men got there, there was hunger, there was violation, there was um, violence, there was uncertainty, For David's fighting men, there was deep fear. Um, For David, there was having to choose between his own safety because once he went to Keilah, as we see, um, and I'm sure he knew this beforehand, he was exposing himself to Saul. People would know where he was. Um, There's always a um, chance of getting um, injured or killed in battle. Um, He had to choose between that and answering the call for help. He had to rally some very reluctant men to help him uh, in this battle against a formidable enemy. The way David approaches hard things is both wise and faithful. He went right to the Lord. He asked God to direct his path. Then he trusted and obeyed what God had told him to do. In our times of trouble, we pray, we listen to God, and we obey as well. Look at Hebrews 4.16 with us on your verse sheet. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a promise to stand on. Okay, let's continue and look at verses six through 14 before I start reading. Um, This is a section where David now has to 
flee Keilah. He's on the run from Saul once again, but very interesting things happen before he leaves town. I'm gonna summarize this a bit. While David is in Keilah, someone loyal to Saul tells Saul where David is, and Saul makes a plan to go and capture David within these city walls. Now, this was probably a possibility that David was well aware could happen before he ever went there in the first place. And then you notice that Saul seems pretty much gleeful about the whole thing because it finally seems like he has David trapped in an area that he can't get out of. This would have been a much situa- different situation than being you know, like out in an open wilderness or desert area. He's within city walls, and what um, Saul and his men think is that if they can surround the city walls that David is inside, there would be no way for David to get over or through the walls without him being caught. So pick up with me in verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Okay, so this requires a bit of explaining. Remember with me that Abiathar is the lone survivor of the massacre of the priests in the city of Nob. We read about that last week. He has gone to David. David has pledged to protect him. And he joins David in Keilah either during or just after this battle that we've just been talking about. He has the priestly ephod with him. He brought it with him from Nod. And this is a really important fact. Why? An ephod is this outer apron-like garment. It was worn by God's priests. It was both beautiful, full of symbolic meaning, and it very importantly, um, this one would have been worn only by the one high priest, had a little pouch that carried something called the Urim and Thummim in it. We don't know exactly what these objects or one object was. Um, Maybe it was two stones, one light-colored and one dark-colored. Maybe it was a two-sided stone. The easiest way for me to think about it is sort of like a a heads and tails kind of coin. Um, And the priest, whose heart it was to know God's will on behalf of the people, would assign a meaning to this object, and then he would basically flip the coin, so to speak, and thereby discern God's will. So we're about to see how David will use this in just a second. But one thing it's important to note is that This is not a way that God's people need to discern, use to discern God's will today. Today, we have all of the scriptures that give us the guidance we need. We also, as believers, have the Holy Spirit living within us. Um, Ancient believers did not have those, um, gosh, great gifts and tools with them. So that was a um, sanctioned way that God allowed um, the high priest to sometimes discern his will, um, but not something that we would necessarily use today. There's only that one set of them, that one ephod that would be used by the high priest. So another way that you see the kingship sort of being transferred from, slowly, from Saul to David is that that ephod and that one remaining priest is now alongside David instead of Saul. So the spiritual leadership of the nation is now aligned with David instead of Saul and ministering to him and backing him and giving him help um, in a way that uh, Samuel used to do with Saul. We're watching in real time that kingdom slowly being uh, transferred away from Saul and given to David. Okay, so that's a lot of background. 
Now back to what's happening. Saul knows exactly where David is, knows that he's trapped in this city. He gathers all, it says, his fighting men that he has. We don't know how many that is, but surely it would have been a lot. They're going after David, and apparently they're not gonna be worried about sparing anyone in their way. And, and people would have believed that to be true because of what had just happened at Nod. So once again, David's in a real tough spot. Once again, what do we see him do? He asks God, what will happen next? Again, really urgent things, but he doesn't jump into action. He doesn't take matter into his own hands. He stops and he inquires of the Lord. So let's pick back up in verse 10. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has, has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And this is where that Urim and Thummim probably come in. He probably asked these questions and then would have tossed that stone and would have gotten a yes or no answer to these questions. Um, and the Lord said, he will come down. And David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Okay, so you can sense David's reverence and humility, I think, before the Lord in these prayers. He's acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty. He acknowledges God as the ultimate king. And I I think that this is a really beautiful aspect of David's character and heart here. Because remember, he's the same man who's been found to be very heroic in battle, who has all kinds of women singing about the tens of thousands of people he has killed. And I can't say that if people were writing and singing songs about me in the street about how great I was, that I would be able to stay as humble as he was. I don't know that many people would be able to say that. He is God's servant. He is willingly placing himself under God's authority. He is willingly um, cultivating and keeping a really humble heart. And I would say that these are the words of a man after God's own heart as well. David gets his answers about what's coming. It doesn't look good for him. God tells him, yes, Saul and all his army are coming for you. And yes, when they get here, the people of Keilah are going to toss you over that wall and get rid of you as quick as they can because they need to save themselves. And listen, I wanna say here that I read a lot of judgy comments about how ungrateful the people of Keilah were to not at least try to um, give him some help right after David rescued them. And I guess I kind of get it, but honestly, I sort of don't buy that. Um, People by now know what Saul is capable of. He's become a very unhinged and violent man. He's just slaughtered an entire town of priests along with their families. And if I'm in Keilah and making the decisions here, I know Saul is coming. I think I'd be the first one to say to David, hey, we're so grateful for what you did. Thank you very, very much. I've got my family here. Please go on and move on along. I'll help you over the wall. You can use my ladder. We're real grateful for you. Move on along. You're clearly capable of man. Best of luck to you. Goodbye. So, you know, David's got a clear picture of the situation he's in. In response to God's answers, David and his men must 
quickly flee into the wilderness. And the language here um, looks as though he was, he took his time to stop and pray, but once he got his answer, it sounds as if um, it was a pretty urgent situation and they just got up and left and they got over that wall and they went every which way um, and didn't probably, uh, weren't able to take a lot of provisions with them and probably didn't have uh, much of a plan or um, any way to really kind of stay together. So David's got a clear picture of the situation he's in in response to God's answer. They have to flee. So look with me at verses 13 and 14. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country um, in Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Okay, so we've got a slide here of what that wilderness looked like. Absolutely barren, looked a lot like this. Um, It's hard to believe that anyone could survive there for very long. Clearly, um, if you didn't, even if you brought a lot of provision with you, it would be hard to understand how you could live there very long. They didn't have a lot of provision with them. I just, it's sort of remarkable to me when both the suffering and just the daily hardship that they had to live under and then also how God somehow kept them alive during all of this. But I I thought it would be interesting to see what that wilderness around this area that they lived in looked like. I mean, even just that rock there that you had to sleep on and you know, where's the water and where's anything to eat? Anyway, this is what they they had, uh, had to flee to. And although Saul hunts him relentlessly, God protects David. We know for sure that it was the Lord who was protecting David, not his survival skills or Saul's inability to track him down because of what it says in verse 14, God did not give him into his hand. David's safety can only be attributed to the Lord's supernatural protection over his life. You know, I've wondered, particularly after I look at a picture like that, why God allowed the situation to play out like it did. Ever since David sort of came on the scene in 1 Samuel 13, we've watched God direct his path with a lot of purpose. He's allowed David many successes, his victory over Goliath, his popularity come to mind, his being anointed as the next king. And I just think, hey, why not here too? Why why didn't God allow David uh, to stay and rest a while in, in Kylia for him not, for Saul not to know he was there, for he and his men to have some time to just be heroes and hang out for a while instead of having to flee and be put in such a bind in such a difficult place. And the answer is, I do not know. Um, he probably didn't know. Here's a possibility, perhaps. I think it may be that God is continuing to teach and to train David to trust him for everything he needs to live moment to moment in dependence on him. David already shows a great deal of trust and faith in God for his refuge and strength, but nobody comes to full maturity this side of heaven. David is going to have a lot of battles to fight in his life. He's got a lot of life left to live. He's going to be king and that's not going to be hard. So God continues to grow David's faith through hardships. 
uh, there will be good things we see that come from um, his having to continue to learn to depend on the Lord. Surely David would have much preferred to hold up for a while in um, um, Keilah uh, rest, but um, that is not what the Lord uh, had for him and he wouldn't have learned to depend completely on the Lord. And that was a gift. Seeing that truth played out here with David has been helping me think differently about the hard places that God allows me to stay in longer than I would like. It reminds me of the good place or the good things that come from being in hard places. It helps me to have eyes to see what good God brings from being hard places. Look with me at Romans 5 on your verse sheet. Paul reminds us of this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which in my mind is one of the hardest things to do. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. When we let him, God will use our hard things for our good. So David is on the run in a desolate wilderness. David is up against a superior army, a king bent on murder. He is doubtlessly suffering physically, I would think mentally, emotionally, perhaps spiritually, and yet God sustained him. The Psalms that David wrote that we've been looking at in the past few weeks during this time speak powerfully of that fact. I don't think that's something that we have to just guess at. I think we can look at the Psalms during this stretch and know that for a fact. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about these kind of truths that God will always prevail against his enemies. Look with me now at Romans 8. I I think it's interesting how some of these ideas parallel what David says in the Psalms. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. In times of trouble, we are confident that God is more powerful than our circumstances. Okay, let's keep reading, picking back up in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph, at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. David once again meets up with Jonathan. Here, David is in this time, I believe, of deep distress, and God directs 
Jonathan toward David at a time when he needs help and encouragement and guidance and grace and mercy and just a friend. So Jonathan seeks out David and helps his friends stay strong in the faith. Uh, And while this sounds like a lovely thing to do and something I think we all want to be good at, we don't always know how to do this. Lucky for us, we get to see exactly what Jonathan did and said right here. And remember back in chapters 18 and 20 when we read that the souls of David and Jonathan were knit together and that... um, Jonathan loved David. I think this is a picture of what that kind of commitment and love looked like in real life. First of all, you notice that Jonathan was very proactive in going to David. I don't know what Jonathan had on his schedule that week, um, what his family or work commitments were, but I know that when he realized that David needed him, he dropped what he had going on and he went to his friend. And that probably was not an easy thing to do. It would have required for sure a good bit of sacrifice on Jonathan's part. When Jonathan gets to David, and by the way, I think it's super interesting that Jonathan went right to David, found him apparently with ease when Saul could never get to him, um, and had, Saul had spies everywhere looking for him. Um, it's a curious thing to me. When Jonathan gets to David, who must be at this point afraid, lonely, weary, maybe losing some hope, um, he spends time with him, he speaks word of truth and encouragement. And his words are rooted in God's truth. So they carry weight. They're not just platitudes. They aren't just wishful thinking. What does Jonathan tell David? He tells him there's no need to fear because his father, um, Saul, will not find him. We don't know exactly how Jonathan knows this to be true, but he does know it to be true and he speaks that. And by the way, I think that David must have been grappling with fear because you don't need to tell someone not to be afraid if they don't seem to be afraid. Jonathan confirms David's future as king of Israel and he pledges his loyalty to him. And I know we talked about this in the last few weeks. I cannot get over what an amazing man Jonathan is. Under normal circumstances, Jonathan should have been the next king. He had all the qualifications. He, um, he had great leadership skills. He was a great warrior. The only way that he would have been able to give up everything that would come along with him being the next king and, and seemingly gladly hand it over to David and pledge to assist him and protect him is because he lives so completely in submission to the Lord and so um, under the leadership of the Lord. Jonathan bodies to me that line in the Lord's prayer that says, not my will, but yours be done. He is a most remarkable man and leader and servant and friend and uh, a person, I think, just to, to, to study and emulate most carefully. Then Jonathan and David make another covenant before God. This, like the covenant we looked at a few weeks ago, was a binding commitment between the two of them. It would have been like a seal um, over what Jonathan had just promised to David. It might have um, simply been a recommitment of the covenant they had made to each other before or a reconfirmation of those pledges in the past. One, that Jonathan would help and fully support David as the future king. Also remember they made that mutual um, pledge of protection to each other's families for the generations to come. And once again, the Lord allows David to be in a hard place 
but he protects David during it by sending him a friend just when he needed it most. I think there's joy in these verses. Two weeks ago, we looked closely at that astonishing friendship between these two men. Here we get to see it again. And I'm just so grateful that one of the ways that God directs our paths and protects our lives is through godly friends and family um, who will drop everything when it's needed, who will come to our side, who will offer wisdom and truth and a shoulder to cry on, and then offer to help us get back up, and then to look at Jesus and just put one foot in front of the other and keep walking toward him. And there are going to be times when we do that for somebody else, and there are going to be times when somebody else does it for us. And I just think it's one of the greatest gifts in the Christian community that there is. In times of trouble, we strengthen those around us and allow others to strengthen us. I've no doubt that David drew from that encouragement and strength because after Jonathan left him, once again, David evades Saul. So David's hunkered down there in that wilderness area around Ziph, uh, which if we can put that map back up there, I wanna show you. So we see Keilah in the middle there. He's gone down to Ziph, which is um, just straight down uh, south. Uh, That's probably 10-ish miles or so um, south of Keilah. And the Ziphites, like David, this whole area right there is in Judah. So David's from the tribe of, of Judah, The Ziphites are from the tribe of Judah. I would have uh, assumed that they would have been, because of being fellow tribesmen, uh, loyal to David. They are not clearly here. They're very loyal to Saul. So the Ziphites betrayed David's location to Saul with very specific geographical detail when you read it. And then notice their language as I pick the story back up in verse 20. They say, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him, David, into the king's hand. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information." Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Paul. There are so many things I could say there about. Mm, Yes, just, wow, Saul is interesting. Um, He's having them do all of the work. He's taking credit for it. He's, yeah, just a lot of different things. You you, You can hear though, what's important here is I think you can very much hear their deference to Saul and their careful alignment with him. Maybe they truly are loyal to Saul and not to David at this point. Maybe they are familiar with that massacre at Nob and they're doing what they need to to avoid a similar fate. Maybe they're angry with David for coming uh, to their you know, area and bringing potential trouble with him because it seems like where David goes, Saul follows and brings trouble with him. Regardless of what their reasoning is, they are doing a lot of legwork for Saul to give him the absolute best chance to find and capture David. And they are putting David um, in an even more difficult situation than he has been in all along, particularly because of the, um, they've got a lot of people with them. They are giving very specific geographical detail. And because they're from this area, they would know it very well and uh, just have a lot of advantages here. So 
Do you notice a very distinct contrast between the way Saul thinks and speaks versus the way David thinks and speaks? David is humble before the Lord. Remember, he calls himself God's servant. Um, He speaks to the Lord with reverence. He has reverence in his actions toward God. Saul here, very self-focused. Every bit of this is about him. In fact, the New Living Translation in verse 21 says, the Lord bless you. At last, someone is concerned about me. And although here and in the last few chapters, he keeps um, almost putting words in the Lord's mouth, Saul never stops and actually seeks out the Lord. We haven't seen that happen in a long time. Saul's sin is deep. Um, It continues to get deeper. He continues to seem to become more and more um, delusional and unhinged. When David, on the other hand, has decisions to make, he asks, what should I do, Lord? And he really seeks out God. When Saul has decisions to make, all he did is ask these other guys to help. When Saul can't find David, he feels sorry for himself. When David is betrayed by fellow tribesmen, He wrote Psalm 54, which we read this week, and has words like, strangers are attacking me, but God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. David is living through all the tough times here. He's in danger for his actual life. He's got all kinds of physical suffering, hunger, thirst, heat, fear, discouragement, disappointment, betrayal. Um, Having been told by the Lord that he was to one day be king, but I would imagine he's looking at his life right now and thinking, I cannot imagine how I am gonna get from the point I'm at now to being a king on a throne. There is no way my life is ever gonna possibly lead to that. Um, Or at least he's got to have a lot of questions about that. But God is directing his life, protecting his life, offering him peace. And I know that because you can hear that in the tone of Psalm 54 and those other Psalms that he wrote. Despite all of the hardships, God is with David and David knows it. Meanwhile, Saul's actions appear more out of control and further from God's protection every day. Look with me at verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David, his men, on the other side of the mountain. Okay, so let me stop and just say what's um, probably happening here. David and his men are um, probably um, uh, close to the edge of a mountain area. Saul, because of the people at Ziph, have closed in on them, know exactly where he is. And Saul has probably divided his army in two and are going around either side. And so there is going to be no way out for David. So no matter where David turns, Saul is going to have or has David and his men trapped. Um, And remember, Saul's army is huge. So there's not going to be a way through them either. So let me um, pick back up um, 26 through 29. But it was important to have a little context there. Um, So David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So at the last moment, Saul gets a message about a Philistine raid. 
he abandons his pursuit of David and David and his men dodge Saul once again. And I don't have any doubt that it was the sovereignty of God that orchestrated that Philistine raid in his perfect timing so that David's life was spared. David is to be the next king of Israel. Nothing Saul can do will ever thwart the will of God. With Saul gone to go fight the Philistines, David and his men are able to go and live in this oasis of Engedi. This was a much better place to be than the wilderness. There would have been water and therefore food to eat, a much more comfortable living situation. David, had, David himself might've thought it was much too close of a call, but God was in control all along. He knew exactly what he was doing. David's story encourages me a lot. And I hope it encourages you too. Because from my admittedly limited perspective, I've got some people in some situations in my own life that I feel like if God would just remove those today, it would all be so much easier. David's story shows that God offers his help in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it looks like him listening to it always looks like him listening to and answering our prayers. Although note that in David's story and ours, the way he answers prayers aren't always the way we would want them to, but they are always the best way. Sometimes his help looks like him visibly demonstrating his power over our enemies, but sometimes our circumstances don't change one bit. And instead he offers a friend to encourage us to hold us up during our hard times. Sometimes he rescues us from things we probably never even have a clue about. And I've often wondered how often that happens to us. Sometimes his rescue comes only after long stretches of really tough days. Um, sometimes his rescue means calling us home. And that sure is hard for those of us that are left behind. God most amazingly directs and protects David and rescues David's life God directs and protects and rescues our lives too. But I also know that some of us are in real seasons of suffering, don't see that rescue, have a hard time sometimes holding on to hope. If we're not there now, we may be someday. David also had some long, hard days and nights that turned into years and months in the wilderness. None of us are immune from suffering, but God is still with us just as he was with David God still has a good plan, just as he did with David. He is still ours, and we are still his, no matter the circumstances we are in. And here is what I know for sure. In times of trouble, we can believe that God is at work, even when we cannot see it. And so I'd like to leave us today with this really good word at the bottom of our outline. It's from Psalm 34, 19. The righteous person faces many troubles, and we all know that to be true, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. We just have to have eyes to see um, what that rescue is and a heart to believe that he is with us and will do that um, and that it will always be good. Let us pray. Lord God, you are good and true. I thank you for how you do direct our path all along the way, whether we see it or not, you were there. I thank you for the protection you offer us um, day in and day out. We are grateful for that, Lord. And I'm just asking that you would give us eyes to see 
um, the ways that you protect us, the ways that you protect those who love us. And Lord, I'm thanking you for our ultimate protection, that you sent your son Jesus um, to save us from our sins and that um, what we needed most, the protection we needed most for our very um, life, you have made a way for us where where there would have been no other way. God, would you help us to trust you in our hard times, to lean on you in our hard times, um, to stop and listen to you in our hard times, and then to be obedient to what you have for us. And Lord, would you just give us great joy in your presence um, and a heart to remember the ways in which you have cared for us and let that be the um, encouragement we need to hold on um, now and in the days to come. And I just pray for your hand of blessing over, um, um, over each woman in this room. And I ask all these things in your holy and precious name, amen.